Arts, Lifestyle, SNS Online. Don't worry, Scratch and Sniffers, it's just me, Nick Randall, Very Light Entertainment. I'm currently trying to track down today's special guest, but he's not making it easy for me. He's created this amazing program called Reverie, Reverie, which allows you to relive your favourite dreams or create your very own new ones that you can exist in and live out your fantasies, well, at least virtually in your head. The real me's actually slumped on a park bench near a well-known budget supermarket in East London, clutching my bottle of vodka like a good one. But in here, I've lost four stone. I look like Brad Pitt in his prime, and I am smelling great. The only problem, dear readers, is that I've hotwired the program to jump into somebody else's reverie, namely my guest, in order to find him and scratch and sniff him. But consequently, I'm a little bit lost. I think I'm in an eternity corridor. Anyway, it's made up of clouds and light with your blue butterfly fluttering past. Get out of it. Quite pleasant. A tad disconcerting. The corridors just opened out into a large circular room. Hundreds of wooden doors are growing to full size all around me. I guess he's behind one of those. Hello? Sorry, sorry. Perhaps uh, get a lock for that, guys. No one seeing that. It's like a jungle in there. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Would you like a jelly, baby? Oh, uh, no, thank you. Estoy sudando. Parece que va a llover. Llueve Conversational Spanish. What about this one? Keep out if you like kneecaps. Puh, charming. Wow, a massive 1950s TV floating in space. Hang on, I'm floating in space. Let's tune it in and see what's on. Hang on, I recognize that face on the screen. Mickey? Mickey Fisher? Amblin Entertainment's finest? Creator and showrunner of Extant, Reverie, and so much more. Well, there won't be any more unless you leave me in peace to meditate and write. I'm oh, sorry, sir. I just arranged to interview you for for SNS Online. You know, scratch and sniff. Oh, are you the British guy looking to unearth all my secrets, eh? Why do you think I'm hiding in my very own private Reverie, Mr. UK? Charming. Uh, excuse me for asking. Why have you got a cartoon octopus serving you drinks and peeling you grapes one by one? Listen, what I do in my private reverie is up to me, kid. And I thought you were just bashing it out on a typewriter. Sorry, Mickey, but you've been in that reverie too long, and it's time for our interview. Exodus. Exodus. What's your all-time favorite memory? The most beautiful, mind-blowing place you can remember. When I was, um, 10, my mother took me and my sister Jamie to this field just full of paper lanterns. It was like floating in space. 
What if you could revisit that moment anytime you wanted? Reverie, what does it do? Reverie is a place where the impossible becomes possible. Mickey Fisher's incredible success in the world of TV writing, stemming from a spec script that got the attention of one Steven Spielberg. You were on the Seraphim station for 13 months. There was never anybody else on board. You're pregnant. You're pregnant. Is worthy of a film treatment itself. Two high-concept TV series of his own creation, plus showrunning of those shows and rising episodes for other glossy primetime strands. Mars, a global event series, coming this fall to the National Geographic Channel. He also happens to be one lovely guy when he's not stuck in his own reverie. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the one and only Mr. Mickey Fisher. So Mickey Fisher, creator and showrunner for Extant, Reverie, and I'm sure a host of other stuff as well as we'll discover as we go. Welcome to SNS Online. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, listen, let's just talk about some of your incredible work. I mean, I've been reading your blog, which you um, marked the evolution of your initial ideas for Extant and how they happen. We'll get to that in a minute. But um, if I could just take you back to your early days. Did the world of television and film inspire you to pick up the pen even then? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I I was of that generation that really grew up on television. Um, yeah, I, and I going to the movies all the time. I always tell people like my earliest memory as a human being, uh, other than like the day that my parents brought my, my youngest sister home, uh, my earliest and sort of, you know, most vivid memory is sitting in the theater watching star Wars for the first time. So I grew up on that, on that kind of thing. And I, and in, uh, in really like that early eighties Amblin kind of heyday too. So all those movies, you know, ET and, uh, you know, Goonies and Back to the Future and all those things, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Absolutely. Like, and, that and sort of have my imagination informed by a lot of those things. And then, uh, and certainly television too. And then I was also very much into comic books as a kid. Um, I was in the fifth grade, I think, when I first started. Well, I'm mean, a little bit younger than that. Maybe in like the third grade, I, I had chicken pox and uh, had to stay out of school for a week. And that's when my dad bought me the set of Lord of the Rings books and he would get up with before work and he would read them with me and then he would go to work and then I would try to read like a little bit myself as like, you know, I was like 11 trying to read the, you know, Cimmerillion. (laughs) (laughs) Were you, uh, were you Tolkien in your sleep? I was, I was. (laughs) I like it. You can have that well on me, mate. (laughs) I like it. I would, I would write that down right now. Write it down, put it in a script. Uh, are any of your family in sort of related career, or, or are you the first to to do something quite so out there? No, definitely the first to do something like this. But um, so my dad was a chemical operator for most of my life, and worked in a lot of you know plants and factories and things. My mom was a registered nurse, but but I really did. So my dad was very much a, a music fan. Both my parents were big music fans, um, but my dad was very into. Um, you know, Christian rock music at the time and, uh, and, and my uncles and, but yeah, I really, I really think that my parents, even though they weren't involved in the business, that they, they really did have a big, um, impact and effect on me as a kid. And in terms of doing this, because they were both really into music. Um, and my dad, particularly and my uncles, uh, you know, at a very early age, like my uncles gave me sort of free reign of their record collection and their, uh, their high tech equipment and taught me how to use it. And so whenever I was be at my grandmother's house and they were babysitting me, like I'd be in their rooms listening to all these records. If I could save time in a bottle. 
and they were fans of like you know Jim Croce and Harry Chapin and these people who were all sort of storytellers. And like I had very vivid memories of uh, being a kid and sitting listening to the uh, Harry Chapin song "Taxi" by myself. You see, she was gonna be an actress, and I was gonna learn to fly. She took off to find the footlights. I took off. But just kind of like emoting with it as a kid, mm. you know. But that sort of thing got me, I think, very much in tune with like just just sort of emotional and like uh, listening to stories and being interested in stories. Um, and it also they were I very much got into performing too. So when I was a kid, I started singing uh, a lot and doing shows in my elementary school, and then in junior high and high school, getting involved in community theater and doing shows in my high school. And so, so really all that stuff kind of filtered into the same impulse, which was to, uh, you know, ultimately like to create stuff and put it out there for people to, uh, to enjoy. Absolutely. It sounds like you were sort of gently encouraged to, to, to sort of go your own way. That's the vibe I'm getting from, uh, you know, in terms of your parents and everything. Yeah, very much. I, I get very lucky in that way. And a lot of people don't have that same, uh, support system. My parents were, you know, very early on, very encouraging. Um, anything I was interested in, they were, they were there to support and kind of help help foster that, you know, I, I started voice lessons when I was in high school and I got interested in like programming keyboards and music. And so my dad, you know, like they, you know, they both work two jobs. They work extra shifts to buy a piece of equipment and they put up with my band rehearsing in the basement and, and going from really terrible to, to, you know, to, to better, to good, to being really good for a high school band. Oh, Mickey, they uh, sound wonderful. Are you, you, they're both still around? Yeah, yeah, both of them are still around. Well, hello lucky. to Mickey's parents from most of us online if they happen to be catching it. But I'm sure they've got better things to do. But obviously, they want to hear you, hear their lovely okay. sons talk. <laughs> yeah. you know, I went to school for musical theater, and I, I it was the first time that I really saw um, people that were you know classmates of mine that didn't quite have that same support of their parents, you know, and they and and they're really struggling to you know to to make their own way and, you know, in, in sort of all levels, you know, financially, emotionally and all those kind of things. And I really hit me kind of how, how fortunate I was. And, but it also gave me this sort of impulse to, um, to be that for other people too, and to be as a supportive, encouraging and, um, you know, to, and to really build people up because I know that not everybody was as lucky as I was to have that. And it's also interesting that you, uh, you picked up on uh, other people's uh, moods and, and, and issues that they had. That's obviously fed into your work as well. There's a lot of empathy um, in, in your work. You know, I, I was, it's one of those things I really has started to, um, I started to understand in the last few years as a, as a bigger concept for, I mean, just, you know, my, my life in general, but, but, you know, stories as an uh, empathy machine. And, um, and really I, I, I think that unwitting, like un, you know, very sort of, um, serendipitously because this was the thing that I was interested in and because I was always interested in talking to people and hearing their stories and writing stories and putting myself in the shoe, in the shoes of my characters, um, that I, that I just sort of developed that, uh, along the way, not consciously, but, but, um, but sort of subconsciously. And I think a lot of writers are like that, you know, they, they wear their hearts on their sleeves. They're very attuned to other people's feelings. I mean, some, some are not, obviously there, you hear stories all the time about people who are sort of very disconnected and, and, uh, cold or withdrawn and this sort of thing. But I think a lot of people, you know, if you're an artist, if you're a writer, if you're a songwriter, if you're a performer, if you're trying to tap into something that gets to a bigger universal theme, or if you're really trying to connect to people, um, that you have to open up the channel on your end first, 
you know. I think you've got to offer your true self in order to other people f- to, to trust that voice as well. Absolutely. I yeah. absolutely. Um, so it's interesting that you went, uh, initially you trained to be an actor, but you eventually got uh, steered off to, to writing. You know, what changed your mind? Well, I went to school for musical theater at this place uh, called the Conservatory of Music at the University of Cincinnati here in, in Ohio in my home state. And uh, it was a great musical theater school, and it really was centered around kind of creating triple threats for Broadway. You know, they wanted, to, they wanted you to be able to, to sing, act, and dance at a really high level um, and really prepare you for a Broadway career. And, you know, I, I was a character guy uh, going in. I was always like a bit uh, much heavier than a lot of my classmates, and, um, and I wasn't much of a dancer. And so a lot of times I would skip out of things or, try, you know, like I would cut class for things I wasn't great at modern dance, uh, you know, tap, those kind of things, makeup. Essentially, eventually I just started like skipping classes and... It's all sort of TNT, isn't it? Teeth and tits, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There are some people that just have that naturally. I did not. Uh, I would hide out in the, uh, in the library just reading plays. And, and uh, also at the same time, it was really uh, the first time that I was being exposed to like art films. There was a art house that was a few blocks away in Cincinnati and... It was the first time I had seen movies that were made for thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars uh, as opposed to like the big blockbusters that I grew up with. And so it was really at the time when, you know, Reservoir Dogs and Clerks and uh, El Mariachi and all these all these movies were coming out, these independent movies. And uh, and I was spending as much time in the movie theater as I was in my classes and in rehearsals. And uh, and, grad- and and then but the thing that really sort of was a turning point was I was kind of scratching around on my notebooks and doing things, uh, kind of on my own and writing ideas. And then we had this audition techniques class and, uh, the head of our department was a teacher of that class. And he gave us this assignment to write a monologue for an audition, uh-huh. uh, wrote a monologue and we had to perform it in front of the class and it went really well. And afterwards he was like, I think you have a talent for this. And he, he walked up to me one day in the hallway and gave me this entry form for a 10 minute play contest, uh, at the actress theater of Louisville, which is a really great theater, uh, here. And, and I took that challenge. I said, I'm going to write a 10 page play to enter this thing. And, uh, and that really was one of the things that really kicked it off. And so by the end of my four years in college, I came out of there wanting to be a writer as much as I wanted to be an actor. And, uh, and then really kind of struggled for like the next 10 years or so fig- between, be, between those two things. Like, do I want to keep going being, you know, as a theater actor, do I want to, uh, you know, a lot of my classmates were going out of school and onto Broadway tours and into Broadway shows and, uh, and the other thing that they told me at my school was like, you know, you're a character guy. You're really not going to work till you're in your 40s. And so I started writing things for myself to perform and, and thinking, well, I don't want to wait that long. You know, so I'm going to write my own stuff to do. And that led to like, well, nobody's really like, uh, you know, producing my stuff. So I'll produce it myself, with my friends at fringe festivals and things like that. And that and so it really snowballed into ultimately I became a better writer than I was an actor. And and finally, that was the thing that, that ultimately I realized also brought me the most joy. Welcome to Hollywood. Everybody comes to Hollywood, got a dream. What's your dream? What's your dream? Hey, mister. Hey. So, you know, essentially, you're a Hollywood outsider, but with huge dreams. Now, obviously, spec TV pilots, as so much as I respect any person who's written anything like that in Hollywood, you know, might be considered to a penny. And solicited manuscripts, you know, making it through to series is, is pretty well unheard of. But you did it. So if we just talk a little bit about that, that incredible journey. 
Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a crazy story, and I mean, it's still like every few days I'll be reminded of of like how it all eventually uh, you know came to a head. And um, but basically, I I, I was living in New York with my girlfriend. She's an actor. Um, I was writing and directing things for different theaters. Uh, I was still doing some acting jobs here and there. Um, and, and I was telling her like, look, and I had made a couple very small, like micro budget feature films as a writer, a director, I was in them too. And I told my girlfriend, like, I really think I need to move to Los Angeles because that is where 99% of this is happening. And, uh, I'm not really meeting anybody in New York who's doing the thing that I want to do. And she said, okay, well, uh, you go out there for that and I'll go with you and I'll go to grad school while you're doing it. So we moved out here in 2011. She started going to grad school. And I took the time because what kind of what I realized is uh, TV was that we were really in this golden age of television. Absolutely. And I a lot of jobs in TV and, you know, writers rooms. They have however many, six, eight, ten writers. And so the odds of maybe getting a job in a writer's room was better than selling the million dollar spec, you know, feature spec. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I should figure out how to break into a writer's room. And to do that, I had to learn how to write television. Uh, and because I had been writing movies and full-length plays and things like that. I, I didn't really know as much as I'd watch television, as I love television, I didn't really understand the actual mechanics of writing an episode of TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I took some time to do that. And I just basically, I sat down with a, a remote control in one hand and a, a pen and paper in the other and uh, was watched episodes of my favorite shows and really just like, from a technical standpoint, how many scenes are there? How many acts? How long is each scene approximately? Absolutely. Because uh, I read some of the, you know, the, the shows you studied, including my favorite Doctor Who. <laughs> so good for you there. Yeah, I, was, I, I would tell people too when I was writing Extant that I put a, a post-it note on the corner of my screen that, that said basically WWSMD, what would Stephen Moffat do? Uh, <laughs> well, my, that, now that is a question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I studied, I studied Doctor Who, I studied Friday Night Lights, and it's funny, I always tell people like, the accent was, you know, kind of, was kind of like a love child between those two things. It was very much about this, you know, aliens and robots, but it was also about this family story at heart. Um, so I wrote one pilot that was kind of okay, and it was sort of a test pilot, and then I wrote the pilot for the show Extent um, that I entered into a contest, and because uh, I was living in Orange County, didn't really know anybody who was in Hollywood at the moment, uh, a, few, a handful of people, but... But um, but really was having a hard time getting it into people's hands to read. So I entered this contest. I came in second place. But uh, part of the contest is as the prize, they want to put it in the hands of people who can do something with it. And so um, so it got to this manager, this guy, Brooklyn Weaver, and he called me and said, you know, I think we could change your life with this script. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and from there, I was meeting with this agency, WME. Uh, the next day after I signed with them, they said, let's send it to Steven Spielberg. Let's just, let's send, let's start there. <laughs> and like, uh, sure. That sounds great. <laughs> mm. uh, and, and, and it's crazy. And so, um, we sent it to Amblin, the people who run his company really liked it. They said, look, we don't do anything unless he's passionate about it. So they sent it to him. And then shortly after I got a call, they were saying, you know, Steven Spielberg likes your script and wants to do it. So, uh, so I went from not knowing anybody in Hollywood, uh, you know, to tr- tr- really like a, you know, two or three people in Hollywood, uh, to, to sitting in Amblin, uh, you know, in the, at, on the DreamWorks campus and, uh, and pitching my show within a couple of weeks. That's just amazing. I mean, I, I, I guess we have a similar attitude in the sense, I mean, I read something in your blog saying that, well, if one person, I don't know if you were quoting somebody else, if one person is seen to be doing something like that, then, then I can do it as well. Why not? You know? Yeah, it's a, it's a quote from the, uh, and he might have been quoting somebody else too, but from that, the David Mamet uh, wrote that movie, The Edge, with Anthony Hopkins, and uh, and they basically said, you know what, one man can do, another man can do, mm. and 
And I really like, I think about that a lot. (laughs) And also what I I like, one of your quotes was something about writing the show or movie you would want to watch. And I absolutely get that because you're going to be so much more excited and enthusiastic and you will go that extra mile to, to make it work because you know in your heart that it's, it's, it's right. Absolutely. I think, I, I think that one of the, one of the key mistakes that people can do is, is, is writing something to try and, uh, position it for success, you know, writing, you know, trying to write something that you think is going to sell because that's selling right now, or, or it's something that people are looking for and something people want. And I think that that's, that's always a huge mistake because if you're exactly what you're saying, if your heart isn't in it, I mean, you, in the best of, in the best case scenario, um, you know, you sell the pilot or you sell the series, it goes, you're going to spend two or three years of your life on this, you know? And so it has to be something that like when it gets hard, when it gets frustrating, that you can always go back to the core idea and go like, I, I really love this thing. Mm. And, and, and I want other people to love it too. Um, and so if your heart's not really in it, you know, if you're like, well, look, uh, you know, vampire things sell, and I'm not really a fan of vampire stories, but I'll, I'll write this cool vampire thing and that'll be my ticket in. Well, a, your heart's not going to be in the script, and then B, you know, if if it does manage to sell, then you're going to be you're going to be spending two years, three years of your life on that. So apparently, it was your fortieth birthday when your script for Extant uh, was accepted, and you met obviously Steven Spielberg, who was the, uh, one of the producers on it. Uh, what was he like, and how was that feeling of, of on your fortieth birthday to have such an achievement? Well, I'll tell you that you look, I had talked to him a few times on the phone. I didn't meet him in person until we were actually shooting the pilot. But I talked to him a few times on the phone for note sessions and things like that. He was out of the country the whole time we were actually, like, taking the show out and selling it. Um, but the coolest thing that happened was we, you know, we'd taken it out. We had pitched it everywhere. We got this offer in from CBS, and, and the deals were closing, and they were getting ready to make the announcement. And it was all happening on my 40th birthday. And so the very first thing that happened on my 40th birthday was I woke up and we had this like team call with all the producers and the showrunner and, uh, and Mr. Spielberg. And, uh, and as we're waiting on him to jump on the phone, I was just kind of like, just, I, I just had to tell them, I was like, you guys, this is crazy, but I have to tell you, this is my 40th birthday. And so when Steven came on the phone, they were told him, they were like, Hey, Steven, this is Mickey's birthday and his 40th. And he was like, Oh, that's wonderful. He's like, yeah, I remember my 40th birthday. I was on set. And, uh, you know, the crew made a cake and stuff. And so it was, uh, it was, it was, it was very cool. It was like, a, and he was like, this is, and I think he said something like, uh, this is a great way to start the next chapter. Oh, I love it. It's, it's just such an inspiring story. I tell you, so lovely. You were on the Seraphim station for 13 months alone the whole time. Yes. Molly, you're pregnant. Did anything happen? Everything is right there in the log. We found an anomaly. We're missing the camera footage. Don't trust them. They were supposed to protect us. What are you going to tell her? Something more believable than the truth. Mom's different now. Your mom has to get used to being back home. i got to say, Extant, it's just such a brilliant concept. Halle Berry, of course, Academy Award winner, who, I mean, what a, what a find to get her on a series, uh, first yeah. of all. And secondly, just for a whole life, I just, uh, people who haven't um, seen the show, basically, I, I think she can't have children. So she has um, an android child made by her husband. And then she goes off on a space flight on her own for about, I don't know, 18 months or something like that, comes back pregnant which is i mean what i love about it is it's very it's it's brilliant but it's it's quite simple to get your head around and it, it's quite beautifully constructed as as a mystery that is is only going to be unraveling like peeling laser an onion 
Thanks. I appreciate, well, I appreciate that so much. You know, I, when I came up with the concept, I'd been kind of carrying around in my head for a little while. And then I, the day that I started it, uh, that really started it in, in earnest. I, I went to a show that evening with my girlfriend and a few friends. Um, we went to see, I think, um, oh, we would see Romeo and Juliet mm. at this theater in Los Angeles. And I was standing outside with this friend of ours and she was like, so what are you working on now? What's the new script? And I told her, I was like, well, it's about this astronaut who goes to space on this solo mission and she comes back and discovers she's pregnant. And my friend like, like grabbed my arm. She was like, shut up. That's great. <laughs> her reaction. I was like, okay, this is a really cool concept. Totally. totally. Yeah. So I really like came the next day. I was just like, just went off to the races and, and, uh, and I kind of felt it too. It's like when I entered that contest, you had to submit a log line, you know, basically like a one sentence description of your, of your story. And I was like, Hey, this is a good, I was like, I feel like the log line will at least get them to read like the first 10 page. Like this is a pretty shameless, uh, <laughs> shamelessly flashy log line. You know, astronaut goes to space, comes back pregnant. And so hopefully they'll, they'll, they'll read the first few pages and, and see that there's a bigger, you know, mystery here in the heart. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I think it was, it, you know, that, that sort of goes to the lesson of uh, a lot of writing less, uh, advice that you get, which is about writing a high concept story. And, uh, and I hadn't been doing that for a while. I've been writing things that were very, sort of small and personal because I was making my own stuff. So I was writing things that I knew I could produce. So it was really about, you know, small town friends and family and relationships and things that were important to me. But the moment that I really started thinking like, okay, what are the movies that I stand in line for every Friday night? What are the high concept ideas that, uh, that, you know, something like Dr. Who or something that I, you know, would binge in Mm. a week. What are those stories that I can tell that I would, that I would want to tell. And so once I did that, it really kind of cracked the code. But Doctor Who's a good example of mixing the ordinary and extraordinary, particularly in the first couple of series when it was when it was brought back with Rose Tyler's family. You had that normality there, uh, and then you have this extraordinary, and they're quite sometimes comical reactions to the extraordinary, which helps us believe it. And also because of the, the way you write and this, this empathy that I've uh, uh, focused on with your work, creating a whole believable universe for these characters and uh, d- d- doing the small stuff so well, you know, little domestic scenes as well as as well as the bigger stuff it, it just makes for a very rich experience in terms of viewing i appreciate that so much you know but I, I will tell you like hearing you say that one of my realizations coming out of the first season was uh one of the places where i had, had ignored the wws and d post-it note was um having like a having enough humor to go along with the big mystery in the heart i mean when you think about you know when you think about rose tyler you think about amy pond you think there is a there is a sort of great like there's all this heart, there's all this emotion, all these big ideas, but there's also this great sense of humor running throughout. Yeah. And I think that, that was the thing, like the showrunner and I at the end of season one of, uh, of extant, we were, we had to go in and pitch to the network and we had to talk about sort of like, you know, what did we learn from the first season? What are we going to try to do different the next season? And our, and, and we would joke around that like, we really probably had three, three jokes or laugh lines in the, in the first season. And we, we felt confident we could double that in the second and have at least six. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> But when we had new showrunners who came on for the second season and they um, brought a very different sensibility, they brought their own sensibility to it, which is they they do have a little a little bit more comedy, a little bit more, uh, um, you know, like kind of banter and the and the sort of uh, 
I don't say quippy is kind of kind of the wrong word, but like a lightness to their to the banter to go along with these sort of like world is at stake kind of kind of big event. Yeah, things. and I think I think people need that because it, they they get involved in the drama, but 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 they they need that release as well. But the characters need because we're sort of almost breathing the the, the characters ourselves. Absolutely, and I, and it really was like a huge lesson for me because I think I think it also in in this day and age there's a lot of stuff that's kind of relentlessly grim. You know, on television, mm-hmm. and it, and the stuff that starts to feel like homework, but the things that have a, a, at least you know moments of levity and a lightness to them, uh, I think I, I I think are far. I don't know. They, I, to me, they just they connect on a deeper level. I think it's exactly what you're saying that that the humor, in a way, can um, can access you and open you up, so that those bigger ideas, those bigger emotions, can really have an impact. You're listening to Mickey Fisher on SNS Online. And we'll be back in a couple of minutes. It's basically about these incredibly brave, brilliant, extraordinary young women aged mainly between 18 and 28 who flew planes to the front line during World War II. Do you think Emily Davison wanted to kill herself that day? All her journalism is about martyrdom and fire and sacrifice and nobility and awakenings. It just reads like one long suicide note. I think she really meant to do it. Because I wanted the world to get better, and I knew it couldn't get better if it's going to be ruled by men. Matter of fact, I think it's amazing how well the men did for 2,000 years, considering they tried to do it alone. I really feel that all the things about being gay can help us as adopters, because we know what it's like to feel different, and we can share that with our children, and I think the level of empathy is, is quite unique and important. I thought to myself, well... If this is a twice-weekly programme uh, and going on throughout the year, um, I should be editor. So I gave myself uh, the, the job, as it were, and had it um, on the credits, and nobody queried it. It was extraordinary. Girls in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force are being called upon to handle many of the responsible jobs which were previously entrusted only to RAF mechanics and ground staff. And they flew without radar, without sometimes without training on that particular plane. You know, they'd have learnt on a tiger moth, and they'd be given a Spitfire. I don't think it did help me get a pay rise, but the point, but 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 the point was, I suppose children's programmes were regarded as so insignificant, nobody bothered what went on. Pauline Gower was the woman who spearheaded it. She got equal pay for equal work. Yes, the first woman. Ever Which is very, in very topical to in the news at the moment. And we are still fighting that battle in 2018. <laughs> How does that happen? Rise Up Women, a special season of shows exclusive to SNS Online. Is your head just like constantly percolating with ideas? Do you have a little notebook by the side of your bed? You wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh my God, I've got to write that down. And then you might put it in the bottom drawer for like five years or something before you do something with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wish it, I wish it was a notebook, but it's kind of like there's like two there's like a notebook, uh, you know, notebooks all around. I have the notes app on my phone that has a bunch of stuff. Uh, I have bookmarks, you know, folders on Chrome that's like, you know, pure inspiration for these ideas and these things that are cool and constantly reading stuff that uh, that sparks ideas. And 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 yeah, I mean, I think that I'm. I, I would say like there are a lot better writers out there than than me. There are people who do things a lot better. I think my my sort of superpower is in, in um, is just the creativity. It's just like drawing connections between things and coming up with like okay, there's this 
there's this interesting technology, there's this cool thing out there. How do you dramatize that? What are the what are the uh, the emotional stories that you could tell? How do you get into the to the complex moral and ethical ideas? And um, and I think that I'm that's the that that thing really excites me. Like that's the thing that uh, get, gets my endorphins going is when I read an article or read a book and I go, ah, oh, I could see how this would be a, a movie or a, or a TV show. And it helps us get our head around uh, the modern world as well. I mean, it, it, uh, through drama, we can sort of, you know, see if we, we need to sort of catch up a little bit in terms of what, what's going on around us. Because I, I, I mean, I was born in 1965, so I just feel I'm walking around in a sci-fi world now. I, I do find it quite phasing sometimes. No, absolutely. We're li- I mean, we are living in a sci-fi age, and there are things that are happening right now that are so beyond, you know, like the stuff that they're doing. Uh, this is all the stuff I'm interested in right now, too, with like, you know, CRISPR and, and uh, you know, m- merging the human and machine. All that stuff is like, I mean, we're going to see that in our lifetime in the next 10 years or so, and it's, it's going to drastically change the world that we know. Um, and I think, you know, we're already living in the age that people like – you know, Isaac Asimov and, and uh, you know, all those people we're writing about, we're, we're living through those times right now. SNS Online presents the soundtrack of your life. So, Mickey Fisher, what's the soundtrack of your life? Everybody says, you know, they have a collective taste in music. I really have like two or three areas that I really feel are, are my constant go-tos. I have a sort of, you know, like the sort of experimental, like more electronic uh, kind of side. There are artists that I love, like Peter Gabriel, uh, Kate Bush, Bon Iver. Then I have the sort of singer-songwriter types that I love, too. These guys, Jason Isbell or uh, people like the Counting Crows. And I have um, – and then one of my all-time favorite artists is Prince, just in general, is our artistry and creativity and uh, inspiration. But uh, I think for my choice, I would pick Running Up That Hill, Kate Bush, because that message has always been uh, – really impactful to me the idea that if you know that if we could change places and i could see from your point of view and you could see from mine that it would solve a lot of our problems and and build that bridge between us um and and she is somebody that you know from 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 early on like listening to her stuff and it was so emotional and but it was so like imaginative and uh and it's it's like it's for 20 years it's been a constant source of inspiration so uh and she's been a constant source of inspiration so i think i'm gonna have to go with that
listening to Mickey Fisher on SNS Online. And if you'd like to comment on this or any other show, then why not join our Facebook and Twitter pages called, unsurprisingly, SNS Online. All our shows are available as free downloads on the SNS Online SoundCloud page. And finally, if you want to email us, it's snsonlineshow at gmail.com. Home. That place where you feel safest. That place where you belong. Six months ago, we left that place. We shared the comfort of our warm blue planet to cross the void to a new world. And even though we may not belong here, it is our mission to make this place home. Mars, a global event series coming this fall to the National Geographic Channel. So, Mickey, let's get on to Mars, um, a, a series set in 2033, so not actually that long away, um, when Earth attempts to colonise uh, Mars. It had a Ron Howard connection, didn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Ron Howard was one of the... Um, uh, Ron Howard Imagine were one of the producers along with Radical Media. And it was a project that had started... I came in a little later into the process... Um, it, uh, it had been pitched to uh, to Nat Geo, and they had this really cool idea where they wanted to make kind of a hybrid series, uh, one that was part documentary 
I'll start with the narrative part first. So the narrative part would be what's it going to be like for the first human beings who colonize Mars? And then the documentary side would be these documentary pods about the people on Earth who are working to get us there right now. And so, you know, because of Apollo 13 and, and you know, obviously he's got a huge interest in those sorts of things. And then I came on as a producer, as a writer producer, a few weeks after they had the room going and um, I was there for the, you know, for that whole first season to um, I wrote one episode, episode three, and then I helped, um, you know, helped break the stories for all six episodes. And then they went off to to Budapest and parts other parts of the world to shoot. And so um, so I had a very sort of brief uh, sojourn on Mars, but I learned so much and was so inspired because I, I learned so much about what is actually happening here right now to get there. And again, I feel like it's something that you and I are going to see in our lifetime, uh, people living and working on Mars. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's a, that's an amazing thing to think about. So it was from the National Geographic Channel. So quite a, quite a change, uh, there. Yeah, it was, I mean, for me, it was kind of great because after being, uh, you know, I was two seasons of extant and living in this world. So there were a couple of big changes for me. One, which was I was a part of somebody else's team. So it wasn't my show. It was somebody else's show. Uh, and I was really able to go and be the, the kind of team member that I, that I want, uh, people to be on my teams, you know, too, where it's just like supportive, as positive as possible. And just, you know, constantly like astronauts kind of constantly working to, uh, solve the problem of the story. And so, so there was that, and then it was also, like I said, because in Nat Geo, there was a, um, a sort of different mandate, you know, like Excellent was very much, you know, fast and loose with the science of it all. But with Nat Geo, it had to be very grounded in, uh, as a mandate, grounded in the real science of how we're going to do this kind of thing. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking to people from SpaceX and from NASA, and, and those people were part of the show, too. They would do these, like, talking head interviews where these people would, you know, would talk about the science behind it. And there were competing ideas about how we're going to get there and which type of rocket and how we're going to land and all this kind of stuff. But um, but but it was very important to Nat Geo and to the producers that that whatever we do, we ground it in how this could possibly happen. What's your all-time favorite memory? The most beautiful, mind-blowing place you can remember? When I was, um, 10. My mother took me and my sister Jamie to this field just full of paper lanterns. It was like floating in space. What if you could revisit that moment anytime you wanted? Reverie, what does it do? Reverie is a place where the impossible becomes possible. You're put inside a waking dream of your own design. Problem is, some of our users decided that life in Reverie is better than the one out here. Their bodies have gone into a coma. They're trapped. What exactly is it that you want me to do? What you did for me on the force. Hostage negotiation. I want you to go inside Reverie and bring them back. So, Reverie, uh, and i got to say, uh, Mickey, I'm a big fan of this show, and uh, something I, my partner actually reminded me to uh, say to you, um, I initially, on the Sci-Fi Channel in the UK, um, they run various adverts and trails, but I saw in between adverts for washing powders and stuff like that, an advert for this company called Reverie that uh, could um, let you experience your actual dreams, and because it was done so well, and perhaps I was a bit tired after work, I was watching it. <laughs> and going, no, 
Surely not. But you know what? There was a part of me that really wanted to believe it. And I was showing uh, my partner, Andy, he said, oh my God, we could like live in our dreams. He'd say, look, just calm down. It's obviously a bloody show. <laughs> no, I love that they did that. That's one of the things that we were really that was sort of heartbreaking about over here is we, we really didn't do any of that stuff here. Oh. You know, and it was from the beginning uh, that was one of the ideas that that you know people had brought up and that we were talking about. It's like how cool would it be to just like release these commercials where people would think this is a real product and then uh, – or at least you know like they will kind of know exactly what you said. It's like wait a second. This can't be real, right? Uh, <laughs> and then you you know sort of pulled them in for the show and, and it just never happened over here. And then one day I think it was our assistant Romy. She was the executive assistant. She sent us this thing. She was like you got to check this out. And uh, and my my heart grew three sizes on watching that. So. Uh. I promise I'm gonna do everything I can to bring your dad back. We have no idea what's gonna happen when we put a second person inside someone's reverie. If no right to be here. If you stay here any longer, you will never come back. I have only been here a couple of days. You've been here for weeks. I want to go back in. But I just thought it was such a wonderful show. I'm trying to think how the best to describe it. It's basically for you to experience your dreams, either in past or ones you want to create yourself. But it feels like you're actually living that moment. And um, it becomes so addictive to some people, this reverie, that uh, some people get lost in their dreams. And, and possibly they might be bearing other bad news, as it were, or issues from their past, which I think is very, very interesting. And um, a... A, a therapist or a former hostage negotiator, rather, um, one called Mara Kintz, uh, played brilliantly by Sarah Shahi, goes into their dream to sort of say, hey, you've actually been here a few weeks, not just a couple of days, and perhaps you need to get out, or is there anything else troubling you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was that really was, uh, again, that sort of like one-sentence hook. It's like, well, there's this company that makes this fully immersive virtual reality program. You can design and program the world of your dreams. And it's so good that people might not want to come back. And so how do you solve that problem? Uh, you, you hire a former hostage negotiator. Um, and then the real sort of emotional drama is like the toll that it takes on her. And I kind of like what you said, the, the thing that I'm, I, I, I mean, I think that idea of people like getting stuck in virtual reality worlds and stuff is kind of, is, has been kind of out there and we've seen quite a bit, but I think mm -hmm. the thing that, that was unique to us that I was really proud of was the idea of using this program uh, as a thing that surfaces your your underlying issues. Mm -hmm. And we always talked about it like, you know, how uh, Spotify or uh, these things have an algorithm, uh, Pandora, you know, like they have an algorithm that is reading algorithms, reading your choices, and it's giving you more of the thing that you want. And so that the algorithm behind this reverie program would be working, 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 and that would eventually surface these deeper issues and and force you to deal with them and so as mar is doing this she's going in more than anybody and having this variety of experiences where she's pulling you know going in and, and rescuing these other people that the program is also working on her and that ultimately surfaces this really deep kind of traumatic thing and forces her to deal with it as well it's just a blur no think ray why did you go for the gun i don't know you do know i was begging her i was begging her just to stop and talk but she wouldn't listen it was like I had no, no, no what? No power. 
And the gun gave you power? It gave me control. It made her stop and pay attention. And then you showed up, and then the police showed up, and I knew I was never gonna have my family again. And I just got this one thought. What thought? That we'd all be better off dead. You had no right to decide that for them. I mean, again, it's like the way, okay, it's on a, on a lower level, but just the way Facebook is monitoring everything we're doing. And, um, you know, in terms of voting to uh, buying things for, for your pet cat or whatever. I mean, I, I, I find that I can find that quite a positive thing because sometimes I'll see adverts for things on Facebook and I think, great, that's just what I want. But yes, it, it does have sinister undertones as well. I, oh, I agree. I'm, I'm kind of like... I'm really torn about it because I'm such an early adopter and I love things. I have stuff all over my house. Um, but there have been times when we've been having a conversation in the living room and uh, Alexa will pop on and she'll be like, I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. And it's like, well, we weren't talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Did you have to do a lot of research in terms of current psychological uh, studies, you know, psychological rather studies, and uh, get experts involved in terms of, well, if that, this character feels like that, then this might have happened? Or was it just you thought, I can free form on this? Uh, it's a little bit of both. And we didn't bring in any, we didn't bring in any uh, experts on like an official consulting capacity. But I mm. did a lot of reading and I did a lot of research on my own before I wrote the – or as I was writing the pilot – you know, I wrote a lot about um, dreams and interpreting dreams and dream logic and and, well, and the types of things that surface and how they manifest themselves. Mm. I wrote a lot about uh, – read a lot about hostage negotiators and how they work to make connections with the people that they're talking to. Um, I did a lot of research into virtual reality and the, and the uses that people uh, – like the different things that people are using it for. Like they are using it for therapy, for PTSD, you know, and soldiers and, and – People who have suffered PTSD, they're using it for people to deal with their phobias, you know, going, going on airplanes and things like that. And so those things are all happening in the world today. And in fact, like with virtual reality, it's been happening for years now that, they, that psychologists have been using this to, um, to treat people. And, and it, it just got very interesting to me that the more immersive and the more uh, realistic these things become, that the more effective they'll be, but, but also the dangers might also be heightened in a way. And then there was one thing that I was – the first time I actually really got to get my hands on – the Oculus and and the Vive and some things really start playing with it was at uh, was at Amblin. They have an in-house person who who was like the digital person. He brought me in to play with it. He started talking to me about this this idea of derealization that you know like the, that your brain basically records these things as memories. You know because it, it's an experience that you're having in this virtual world. And it's very hard for your brain to distinguish between the two. And so the idea that you know like some people who are in this world for like. If you're playing virtual reality all day, that you may take this off, but you may still have flashes of that virtual world throughout your day, mm. and uh, and that really became you know kind of a core concept of the show. Absolutely, I mean, especially because the main character has her own issues from something that happened in her past, and it's so beautifully woven into the story. And what I also loved about Reverie is it, it's a real open canvas to tell very different stories each week. I mean, all very human, but you've got the high concept thriller elements as as well, which which is which is fantastic. 
I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, and I, you know what? I mean, because I was I was born in '65, so I was watching telly in the '70s, and this is meant as an extreme compliment because some of the early strong female characters, people like you know the Cagney and Lacey's and stuff like that, the bionic woman's Lindsay Wagner. For some reason, um, Sarah Shadi really reminds me of her in terms of just that that naturalistic. Uh, sort of natural beauty and uh, I don't know delivery. Do you get that at all? <laughs> no, hundred percent. Like in fact, it, like I that 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 would be a no-brainer today. I think somebody should absolutely reboot that show with Sarah Shaggy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, we when we were casting the role, we definitely there were a couple things we were looking for. Uh, to me, there were two things that were very important, which was. Uh, one, it had to be somebody who looked like they could physically handle themselves um, because this person would have been in dangerous situations. We knew there might be some action components and things like that. And Sarah had done like person of interest and she'd done some things that were very physical. And she I have I've never seen that. But she's, you know, she's like a stone cold killer in that uh, in that show. Um, but then it also had to be somebody who was very warm and empathetic mm-hmm. and who would instantly be like your best friend who you would open up and tell all your secrets to. Um, and she is so much of that. Like she's. She is one of the uh, most big-hearted people I've ever met, and she's just very, like, you know, luminous from the inside. And um, and she also has this great sense of humor, and sort of very goofy and not afraid to like, you know, to 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 go out on a limb and 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 to try the 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 unique thing or make the odd choice. And uh, and so she really like oh, we got so lucky with her because really anything we wanted to do with the character, she could go there and would go there. And, uh, and so I, I just, I loved her and I, I love working with her and we had, I, we had a really great experience throughout and it was very much, um, you know, a collaborative thing where it's like at the end of the day, you know, if I had gone home earlier, she was still shooting and she would call me on her way home and, you know, here's a couple of things I had to deal with today that, you know, or here's something I'm thinking about this next story and, you know, and, and, or she would call the showrunner, you know, this Thompson Jersey who was running the show, um, and we, you know, we would all talk about it and, mm-hmm. and it was really a very collaborative thing. And it was, uh, to me in the best of all possible ways of how that could happen. I mean, you had some amazing people in that show. Let, let, we should be name checking some of the others. Obviously, Jessica Liu, uh, Catherine Morris, who was in Cold Case, uh, Sentil Ramamut Murphy from Heroes fame, who's fantastic. Uh, Dennis Haysbert, wonderful, wonderful cast. But I mean, I, nothing against the others, but I, she absolutely brought that show so alive to me. And also, I've got to say, you managed to get 30-something Snuffy Walden doing, involved in the music. How brilliant is that? Listen, Snuffy Walden is one of the coolest human beings walking on this planet right now. He is just a guy who, uh, you know, when he comes and sits in the room, there's this vibe about him that you're like, oh, this is like I am sitting next to uh, uh, a, an L.A. rock god. <laughs> 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 and he, you know, he did the West Wing and he did Friday Night Lights. I mean, he's just like done all kinds of and he had, And so it was him and this guy, Patrick Rose, uh, and the two of them, they... Uh, they really, you know, created this. I think for them it was a lot of fun because we went to all these different worlds, and so every every week they could, you know, influence the the score with whatever world we were going to. Like we went to seventies Chile, you know, and they could add that stuff to it without going too over the top and uh, and you know, kind of drowning the vibe in it. But they would just add these little hints of things, and so I think it was fun for them. And uh, and they really just, I think that music was a, a big part of the heart of the show. Absolutely. I want to go back in. 
Um, we're going to go into a little clip. It's it's one that sort of freaked me out so much at the time. Uh, when um, the character's boyfriend comes to say hello to her, who is actually in her flat, uh, but then she gets a phone call. God, you scared me. Sorry. How did you get in? <laughs> you never asked for it back. I took it as a sign of hope. <laughs> for 18 months? Yeah, well, you know, I'm, oh, a, yeah. I'm a very hopeful person. Uh, really? Are you now? <laughs> I'm so sorry I was late. Oh, my God. It was just such a crazy day. Good crazy or bad crazy? Uh, you know what? I will tell you in just one second, but first, I'm starving. Are you ready for the yeah. pasta? Sure. Okay, good. Yes. Are you calling me? <laughs> no. This is you. Hello? Mara. Who is this? It's me, Chris. Sorry, I, I was in session uh, with patients all day. I just got your message. Uh, so you text. Um, Dinner. What, uh, what do you mean? Did you send this to the wrong person? No. Who is this? Seriously. Mara, it's, it's me. It's Chris. Mara. Are you there? You're not real. Just calm down. Yeah. Everything's gonna be good. That, that really freaked me out at the time, um, Mickey. So thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. So with Reverie, it almost seemed that you cracked that limitless format with a show like Doctor Who has to offer, that anything can be behind that door, TARDIS door or Reverie door. But Reverie didn't continue into a second season, which I was so sad about. And uh, I mean, I was going to ask you first of all, how much work had you done on season two before you found out? Uh, so that the showrunner Thompson, Georgie, and I, we had met a few times over, um, you know, we'd spent a lot of time together in post-production after we'd wrapped. I think we wrapped in December of 17 and we spent the first few months of 2018 together, uh, sitting in post-production, watching the edits, going to the mixes. Mm-hmm. And we started really having that conversation then of here are a couple of things we could do. We'd had, we'd had a, a couple of conversations before the end of the season because, you know, we knew we wanted to end the season as if, or the, the ending of one chapter or the end, ending of one novel. But we wanted to leave the hint of where this could go afterwards and the idea that there are more stories to tell and there's some, there's an interesting new twist uh, or wrinkle in this thing, which is that, uh, you know, the spoiler alert, I don't know, should I spoil this? Um, that, uh, that Mara was somehow in the real world and in reverie at the same time. Um, how is that possible? What does that mean? Uh, what's that going to do to her? And so we knew that was kind of a core of the story that we wanted to tell in season two. So then uh, after post-production and while the show was airing, we, we got together a few times and really talked about like, OK, where where does that go ultimately? Where does it end? And so I, and we came up with great stories for all of our main characters. And really, you know, we kind of took those lessons again from season one. What do we think fell flat? What do we think really worked? What do we think the audience is expecting and how do we subvert that? Um, and, and, and still surprise them. And I thought I was really like excited about the possibility. And, and like you said, I mean, the show was built to, to explore 
people from all walks of life, how would they use this program? What would you create if you had this power? And we didn't even get to scratch the surface of it. And it was, uh, it was, it was a pretty heartbreaking uh, call to get. Sweet dreams till sunbeams find you. Sweet dreams that leave all worries behind you. But in your dreams, whatever they be, dream a little dream of me. So what is next for Mickey Fisher? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I've been writing a lot. I I did a couple projects this year. I was in the... uh, mini room for for this reboot of amazing stories it was this 80s uh 80s series from mr spielberg um it was an anthology series it was really like you know fantasy sci-fi stories that were hour-long stories uh, and they're doing that at apple and so i got to spend a few weeks in the room with people like uh the showrunners for that kitsis and horowitz who created once upon a time and tron legacy things like that and uh and they're super cool and this guy zach penn who had written you know written a bunch of superhero movies jessica shars are all these really interesting writers and, uh, and so I got to spend a few weeks there. I got to spend a couple of months uh, in the writer's room for uh, the second season of Jack Ryan, which was uh, super cool. The, the showrunner that – one of the two showrunners that, Carlton Cuse, I'd worked for him on The Strain on the final season. And um, and so I got the call to go there. And it was it was a whole new world for me because I've been mostly writing this you know, science fiction or genre stuff. And to go into uh, you know the uh, you know Tom Clancy or a spy world – uh, was a whole new thing. And I really, that was a wonderful two months. And so now, and then the time since then has really just been like stepping back to go, okay, what are the stories that I want to tell next? I did take out a pitch that, uh, that I sold. I can't really talk about yet, but it will be out in the next, I, I was hoping it come, I would, was hoping it would all, you know, come down before this podcast. We could talk about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe we'll come back and do like a, a follow-up, but, Absolutely. Um, but, but I don't want to jinx it because things are still sort of being worked out, but, uh, the, like the deals aren't closed and that sort of thing. Um, don't mention the Scottish play and all that. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so there's that. And then I, I just finished, it's funny, it's funny I just uh, yesterday finished a feature spec that is really kind of grounded in a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. Mm. You know, this, I mean, my favorite thing is this very like, grounded science fiction thriller that's based in the world we live in, but sort of just slightly ahead, you know, like the the world we live in, but but a, a tiny glimpse. And the, the, the sort of go-to phrase is five minutes in the future. But, you know, we really were five minutes from now, we're, you know, we're five minutes in the future, so. I'm, I'm so looking forward to seeing what, what comes up next. I'll be checking your name out in the credits. And um, I just want to thank you so much, Mickey, for being so generous with your time today. We usually give our guests a what we call a celebrity goodie bag. Now, um, just because you're in L.A. will not stop us. Um, we managed to get um, a bottle of champagne to Hank Marvin in Australia. So um, when we take an appropriate business address or whatever, a nice little gift will be winging its way to you, sir. <laughs> Oh, nice. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll make good use of it. <laughs> okay. Listen, Mickey Fisher, thank you so much. Just one more thing, Nick. Oh, yeah? You do know you're still in reverie, right? Uh, <laughs> how do you mean? You're in my dreams, Nick. You're in my, dreams, dreams, in my dreams, Nick. <laughs> Sorry, I'm confused. I mean, reverie's just a TV show, Mickey. <laughs> I think I've been working you too hard out there. Me, Mr. Tentacles, my pet cartoon octopus. <gasps> no! No! You haven't no, woken no, up! No! no. no. no.